welcome to the Footage of the Ball and the Post to the Apocalypse Christmas Special. It's Christmas! Okay. This week we are going to talk about Carl Panzram, America's most famous unknown, famous unfamous. Because there's not many people heard of Carl. And what oh, it's new to, to me. Let's see, murder hobo. Mm. Let's go with that. Pretty, pretty nasty man. Yeah, should be more, more famous. In more term, famous. More famous in terms of like his name. You know, everyone's heard of a Bundy and a, yeah. and a Dharma yeah. and a Gacy, and no one knows about old Charles Panzer here. Even though the fact, in reality, he makes Gacy and all them lot look kind of look a bit tame soft, in some respects. Softcore kind of, don't yeah. they? In, in some ways. Yeah, well, certainly in some respects. Yeah, mm. it is dark Christmas. We never do light and fluffy Christmases. It's our part of our. Our, our gimmick, our tradition, absolutely. We don't have many traditions on Cutting to the Bull in the post the Apocalypse, but Dark Christmas is certainly one of them. I'm Ben. I'm joined by my... Hello. Claire. Hi. And Pete. Hello. And I should really also point out, there's a bit of a trigger a trigger warning. Spoiler, yeah, we'll go with that. If you are, like, really alarmed by acts of utter depravity, yeah, murder, then maybe give this one a miss. Yeah, this, yeah. Ain't, this ain't the, the cast for Not you one for you. <laughs> right, there's been some discrepancies with SoundCloud again this week and their analytics. So we haven't got any new material lists, but I'm sure that Guadalajara, Spain is in there. Ashburn, Virginia. Ashburn, Virginia's in there. Our Indian listeners definitely about, and our Germans, Croatians. We've had a few Russians now and again, French, no, Scottish. Let's not forget the USA. Let's not forget the USA. Thank you all for listening. Follow us on Facebook at Cutting Through the Bull in the Post Truth Apocalypse. YouTube is Apocalypse Bull. And SoundCloud and Spotify and all your other podcasting platforms. We are Cutting Through the Bull in the PTA. Give us a like. Give us a subscribe. All right. What else we got? I've got to kill 30 seconds until YouTube can tell me it's okay to talk about shit. we got some deaths, haven't we? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Fant-fucking-tastic. Some well, deaths. Obviously, it was last, last week we should have given an R.I.P. to... Benjamin Zephaniah, oh. the poet, sadly died. UK poet, also in the show Peaky Blinders in the first yeah. well, two or three seasons, is he, is I think. He's all the way through. I think he's all the way through. Not a major part in it, but he's a, he probably has his biggest role at the end of season one when he teams up with them. Good shootout, that is. Good standoff. Great show. Yeah. Right, we've passed a three-minute mark. Somebody else has died, so then, Pete. And obviously, sadly, an R.I.P. to Andre Brower. I believe that's how you say his name. He played the captain in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But yeah, he he was he was he was a great actor, wasn't he? He was great. You've seen him in a few different things, yeah. but obviously most notorious for that. R.I.P. Gone too soon. So let's move on to Carl Panzum then. Oh, I wish it could be Christmas every day. So we can talk about Carl Panzer more. He was a fine-looking chap, wasn't he? Actually, he was considered quite handsome for his time. And no, I was being genuine when I said yeah. that. He was a fine-looking chap. But at his peak, he's like six foot three, like 200 pounds. He's built like a fucking wrestler. So Charles Carl Panzer was born on June 28th, 1891, on a small derelict farm in East Grand Forks, Minnesota. 
His parents, Johann John Panzerum and Matilda Lizzie Panzerum, were hard-working German immigrants. They're basically dirt farmers, you know? You know the expression, dirt farmer? Like, whatever they grow, it's never quite enough. Just mm. farms that turn a profit. But hard, because they're German immigrants, hard work will get them <laughs> through it. As with many immigrants of that era, they were stern and dirt poor, and Carl was the oldest of seven children, with five brothers and one sister. He later claimed all of his siblings are honourable, devoted farmers, but that he did not possess these characteristics oh, himself. He definitely didn't. One of the brothers went on to be a policeman, actually. Mm. So it's you know, been interesting. Roundabouts. Yeah. Some roundabouts <laughs> in that family, wasn't it? Parents were proud, somewhat. <laughs> now, basically, the kids worked on the farm, mm. right, until they were old enough and the law changed that all children had to go to school. So what the parents did was send the kids to school in the day and then add them up and working on the farm until the early hours of the morning. So Carl's like getting four hours sleep a night, if that. Mm. It's not good. None of the, you know, like Carl and the rest of his brothers mm. and sister. So like, that's not good, is it? And then subsequently, when Carl was only seven years old, his parents separated and since people of their economic status could rarely afford the divorce, his father just left one day and was never heard from again. I'm going down the shop to buy some smokes. <laughs> kind of scenario. Yeah. He's just a failing farm and things like that. He's had enough, hadn't he? Hard life, innit? Yeah. How many kids did he have? Seven. Yeah. Was it seven? <laughs> he had enough. Seven, yeah. Seven, and you're just toiling all day, breaking your back on that farm. Yeah. Breaking your back when you're going, fuck your missus. <laughs> <laughs> Got seven yeah. kids, didn't he? That's all he yeah. was doing. Well, that's yeah. a, but that's yeah. it. You go in for farming, you eat. What else is it to do? They you didn't fuck. Have, didn't have telly in them days. Exactly, no <laughs> telly. Probably very few books in the house. Gets dark early in winter. Might as well fuck. Because it's saying, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Pretty much human sweat history. Subsequently, though, life became bleaker for the Panzer family. They worked the farm all hours of the day and night with little to show for their hard work and despite being the eldest of his siblings, Carl was beaten relentlessly by his brothers. Also worth pointing out around the tightest time, he got his, he got his brain injury. Mm. He had a, an issue with, with his skull, it was operated on at home. It didn't go well because it's a home cheap surgery where the doctor comes to your house to do it. Had to go to hospital. Resolved the it? problem. It was like literally like a growth somewhere on the mm. on the skull, but still his head injury, mm. which is what all serial killers have. Yeah, and normally abuse as well when they're young. Yeah, that I think that's one of the bigger keys. Plenty of plenty of abuse coming up. Mm. When he was eleven, he broke into a neighbor's farmhouse and stole everything he could get his hands on, which meant into apples, cake, and a handgun. Authorities arrested Carl for this crime, and in 1903, he was sent to the Minnesota State Training School, a reform school for juvenile offenders. But that wasn't nice. No, because these things are just, well, it's abuse systems at this point, aren't they? Up until 30, 40 years ago, maybe, a lot of those juvenile kind of prisons were shockingly shit. Yeah. And a lot of these people don't have anyone to answer to. No. That's that's the problem. No mum or dad. No stable family to be out there. I mean, the guards. 
Well, yeah, but no look, one's overseeing them. They're just yeah. acting as they want. But a lot of the time as well, they didn't have much in the way of a stable family to be able to report back to anyway. So those the crimes that were committed within the walls were never really. Oh, they were never really got out, did they? Some of these boys just lost causes straight away, aren't they? Yeah, which is the same as Carl is really. Not something he's empathetic. He didn't have a chance. I mean, no showing no empathy. The man was fucking evil, but his upbringing certainly did not well, contribute how well. Much, how much of his upbringing contributed to his evilness? Are we a blank slate? Are we not? Well, yeah. Nature versus nurture, yeah. isn't it? You reap what you sow, don't you? Yep. And that's how it works. It's learnt behaviour as a child. You find most of these psychopaths have been abused. Mm. So located in Red Wing, just south of St Paul on the Mississippi River, the school housed approximately 300 boys ages 10 to 20. The juveniles there were at the complete mercy of the jailers who had little if any outside supervision and as a result they administered an almost unfathomable level of abuse. Carl's entry in the facilities and mission log on October 11th 1903, the day of his arrival, lists his crime as incorrigibility. Did I say you say that? Um, what, what, does that but, and what does that mean? Incorrigibility, I think. Incorrigibility means a bit of a twat, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and quarrelsome. They should just say that. He's a bit of a twat. And quarrelsome. And that'll get you... So argumentative. Put, yeah, put yeah. him there. Oh, no. He's, yeah, his quarrelsome was listed as the state of his, as his parents' relationship. So his parents argued all the time. So that was put down on the sheet. And when he arrived at the institution... The frightened boy was taken into an office by a male staff member who stripped him naked, examined him, and asked him about his sexual practices. I want to quote Carl Panzerman in his later years. He examined my penis and my rectum, asking me if I'd ever committed fornication or sodomy, or had ever had sodomy committed on me, or if I had ever masturbated. Batman. <laughs> Sorry. I was thinking yeah. That. yeah, that's what I was going with, because I think Carl Panzerman sounds like Batman. Or at least a 90s wrestler. <laughs> you can't tell me you never watched that video and thought that guy sounds like Batman. So just to clear up, incorrigible, the true meaning of that is incapable of being corrected or reformed. Oh, interesting. So basically, Bit of a lost twat. cause, like you said, though, that's what yeah. that means. That word means he was a lost cause. Nothing was going to change him. He's a little bastard and he's going to stay that way for the rest of his life. So we're just going to beat and sodomise him until... Until he gets until, worse. Until he leaves, then, basically. While housed there, the boys received, quote, Christian training. If they misbehaved or failed to learn their lessons properly, they were attacked by abusive, vengeful guards. Now, Carl had difficulty reading as a result of his lack of his formal education, and that was one of the reasons for his multiple punishments. Oh. That's and, shit, isn't it? Yeah. Poor sod. Terrible. Yeah. People can do that to children. Couldn't read because yeah. he'd never been taught, so they beat him because he couldn't read. Yeah. Teach him to fucking read! And unsurprisingly, mm. he soon developed a hatred for authority and religion, attributing his suffering to them. And when the attendants wanted to dole out their punishments, they took the boys to the painting room. Mm. Boys were brought to this room by staff members and walked out covered in bruises and probably much worse. Mm. I'm capturing images of what's the film, born with Kevin Bacon as the guard. Sleepers. Sleepers. Yeah. It's kind of, that's kind of the images I'm getting off of that. But yeah. 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 Awful. 
Most of the punishments Carr received during this time were earned by insignificant infractions. His resentment grew every time he was assaulted by a staff member with a wooden board, thick leather strap, heavy paddle or whip. And with each punishment he was dealt, his plans for revenge grew. They would, wouldn't they? Of course they would. On July 7th, 1905, as he left the painting room, he rigged a simple device that started a fire. The fire rapidly engulfed the building that housed the room, burning to the ground, and as it crumbled under the flames, Carl lay in his bed, laughing triumphantly. <laughs> yeah. How old is he at this time? Ah, oh, man, he's like, he's under 13, let's put it that way. Born in 1891, he's 13. 13 to 14. Now, by late 1905, he'd learned to say, how to say what the staff wanted to hear, and when he appeared before the parole board, he convinced them that he'd changed and was fully reformed as a result of the lessons the school had taught him. I was reformed all right. <laughs> I had been taught by Christians how to be a hypocrite. And I learned more about stealing, lying, hating, burning and killing a WrestleMania 22. <laughs> <laughs> That's a direct quote from Carl Vandrum. That winter, Without the WrestleMania. Bit, <laughs> the WrestleMania. Bit. <laughs> that winter, his mother came to the school and took him home. Indeed, Carl had changed, but not for the better. He was more detached and melancholy. But his mother's got different things to worry about him. She's got a farm and six other kids going on the go, and her health is failing, and she does not have the time to deal with a child who only seemed to cause trouble. Well, she's on her own as well, isn't she? Yeah. A single parent to seven kids. And a farm to run. And a farm, A yeah. failing farm, a farm that only ever scrapes by. Yeah. She felt perhaps he'd grow out of it, but the only thing that grew was his resentment. He actually did end up in a seminary school in between this. He wasn't there for very long. That handgun he stole. Yeah. He pointed at the gun of the face of one of the, the he pointed it in the face of one of the pastors mm. and went to blow his fucking head off. Fortunately, the gun misfired. Yeah. He, fired, mm. he, he shot, but he shot three times, and that gun didn't fire. Wow. And all they did was send him home. Well, that's definite intent, isn't it? If nothing else. Yeah. Three times. Yeah. There's no getting away from that, is there? No, there isn't. You don't know what that could have done to him either, do you? No, but still, to oh, just to even... I'm going to seminary school, I'm going to be a priest. <laughs> so I just shoot a priest in the face. Okay. Still, it's... it's just have the bollocks to do that in itself. He's, thir he's 13? Yeah. Claire, you can you imagine your 13-year-old th doing that? No. Yeah, bastard. Yeah, he, he wouldn't dare, would he? No. Yeah, but he hadn't suffered years of abuse. Well, I don't know, Claire's his mum. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Defend yourself, Claire. Clearly joking, guys. She's a great mum. She is a great Punch mum. Punch him in the face, Claire. I was watching them beat each other up this afternoon. <laughs> go on, go on, son. Give him one. I was like, yeah, pretty much. Sweep his legs. Sweep the leg. Uh, Why don't you get organised into a backyard wrestling thing? Maybe I will. <laughs> they, they're getting old enough now, aren't it? <laughs> Sell tickets. Yeah. To the local Telfordites. <laughs> so all Carl knew at that time in his life was suffering basically due to the beatings and torture he'd endured and his young mind dwelled on the kinds of physical and emotional pain that probably no child should ever actually no, know no. 
In January 1906, he left home to escape his bleak situation and unleash himself upon an unsuspecting world. <laughs> I like how it says that, unleash himself on an unsuspecting world. Yes, it really did seem that way, didn't it? It yeah. certainly did. Because it's, it's not even started yet, and already he kind of like, he's to, he's, whoa, he's a fucked up chicken, whoa, and he's not even started. No. He's not, he's 14. I know. Yeah. Can't have been that bleak, can it? He could have just knuckled down and. <laughs> well, this is always the, actually the answer. Clearly, you can argue that every decision Carl Panzer made was the wrong decision. Yeah, he could have made the opposite choice, the choice of good, not evil. You know, we'll see that later on. But yeah, you're right. He... Unless you've been in that position. Mm. Well, you're gonna see what comes yeah. next. Because he hops a freight train at 14, departs the family's lonely Minnesota farm, never to return. And while he's on this freight train, heading west from Montana, it's aboard this train, he came across four hobos hanging around in the lumber car. And they said, hey, you know, we'll give you some decent clothes, we'll give you, some, we'll give you one place to sleep, we'll give you some whiskey. And then all four of them took turns in gang sodomising him. Oh, man. Here it is, Merry Christmas, everybody's having fun. This is where the pink and fluffy comes. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. Yeah, all it? four of them took turns on him, basically. That's yeah. Fucking, oh. He's a 14-year-old lad, gets four blokes. As big as he was, mm. still didn't have a fucking chance, did he? No. And after this incident of sexual abuse, Carl later claimed that he decided he would get his revenge... I left that box of sadder, sicker, but wiser boy. I made up my mind that I would rob, burn, destroy, and kill everywhere I went and everybody I could as long as I lived. Why? Shit. Yeah. Shit indeed. Shit indeed. Although he escaped from that traumatic event with his life, whatever remaining compassion he may have had was dead. And it wasn't long after that he was arrested for burglary in Butte, Montana, and sentenced for one year to be served at the Montana State Reform School located in Miles City. When he arrived there, he was only 14 years old, but had a man's physique and weighed 180 pounds. He's a big boy, is Carl. So that farm work as a child. Mm. Mm. And it wasn't long before his reputation as a defiant teenager grew, drawing special attention from the staff. One particular officer treated him so severely the Carl eventually retaliated by beating him with a wood, heavy wooden board, and for that he was beaten, locked up, and watched closely. That's when he decided that prison life wasn't for him, and even if it meant being killed, he was getting out of there. As you would at that point, isn't it? Of course. Mm. Goes that cycle again, isn't it? Getting abused and beaten up. Deciding you're not going to have it anymore. You're going to take your revenge. So you take, you're going to take your revenge on the entire world. He opened the window and shouted, I'm as mad as hell! Yeah. <laughs> yeah! I bet he was shouting that on his cell. <laughs> and I'm not going to take this shit anymore. Now, in 1907, Carl escaped the reform school with, along with a fellow inmate named Jimmy Benson. They went to a nearby town and were able to steal several guns. And they then hung around for a month, riding together for a month, riding the rails, heading east, looting and burning wherever they could. Usually churches, because they held a particular significance in Carl's mind due to his treatment in Minnesota. And we're talking, honestly, about 120 churches. Fucking hell. Why? 
went and looted churches. That was his. In the space um, of a few months. Yeah. And this is going to all be verified because Carl had a really good memory when he was writing down his crimes later on in his life. And this can all be traced back. Oh, yeah, five in a local church this day. He could give the year and a month. So it showed he had a degree of intelligence then, really. A smart guy in some ways. His memory was fantastic. Mm. And when the pair reached Fargill, they each had two handguns and hundreds of dollars in stolen money. And that's when they parted ways. Carl started going by the name Jefferson Baldwin and headed west again across the plains of North Dakota, ending up in Helena, Montana, where his story took another turn. So one night, Carl's drinking alone in the bar when he hears a speech from an army recruiter. And that same night, he lied about his age and enlisted. Now this is where he could have made a difference. It's like he could have joined the US Army. He's a man with the talent for violence. If, if he'd have just, if he'd have just actually just knuckled down and said, "All right, this is what I've signed up for. I'm going to take orders. I'm going to." But he can't. Though. That's why. That's why the point. But he could. Yeah, but it's um, like the complete wrong profession for him. Surely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> he doesn't deal well with authority. No, but if he could, and the put, army's all about authority. But if he could put that behind him, he could have made quite a career at this point. Mm. Yeah, they didn't do their job well enough. They should have been out of breaking. Well, I don't think anyone can break Carl Panzer in all fairness. Mm, Clearly. On his first day in uniform, he was charged with insubordination for refusing his work detail. (laughs) That's day one. (laughs) Day one. Right, you're coming at the staples. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Right, insubordination. (laughs) He continued to be jailed many times over the next several months over petty infractions. And since he was always drunk and impossible to control, <laughs> Carl couldn't conform to army oh, life. Shit. In April 1908, he broke into the quartermaster's building, stole approximately $88 worth of clothing, and attempted to go AWOL. He was then promptly arrested by MPs and thrown in the stockade. I bet they wish they'd have had him in 1917. I love Carl Panzerum on the Western Front in 1917. On my side. Mm. <laughs> yeah. 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 Four in ten years, like, yeah. You want him next to you in the trench, didn't you? Well, maybe not too close. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case there's sodomy. <laughs> and at least a man between us. <laughs> <laughs> On April 20th, he received a court-martial and faced a tribunal of nine junior and senior officers and he chose to plead guilty to three counts of larceny. He would have to serve three years of confinement and hard labour because let's make this fucking wrestler even fucking harder by making him do manual labour every day and building them muscles up some fucking more. Jesus, creating a monster. It was a place directed by the reviewing authority and a dishonourable discharge from the service of the United States and at the time federal prisoners served their time at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. Then Secretary William of War, William Howard Taft, approved the order, later President Taft, yep. and Carl will get his fucking revenge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was Carl was chained up and transported to the local train station where he was shackled inside a train cow car and deprived of food and water for the 1,000-mile trip to the imposing Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary 
along the banks of the Missouri River. In 1910, he was done serving his time at Leavenworth, and he had nowhere else to go, and he was still only 19. Spent most of his life in reform schools or prison, sadly. That's all he's pretty much known, isn't it? No family, no home, no prospects. Of course, because he was... He illegally went into the army younger mm -hmm. than he was meant to be. Yeah, so no opportunity. Were, kicked out yeah, no, no opportunity to evolve as a person. Nobody showing him empathy or compassion. It's the thing with Carl Panzer is literally no one ever does show him any empathy or compassion until one chap does, and it changes him a little bit. There you go. That's later on. Over the next several years, he drifted from the East Coast to the West Coast and back again, adopting many aliases, committing many crimes, sentenced to many years, lots of sodomy going on. More. More sodomy going on. And he managed to escape every time. He drifted across Kansas and Texas into California, he rode the rails, and spent time in Washington, Idaho, Utah and Oregon. Shaped by many years of heavy drinking, severe beatings, harsh imprisonment and living as a vagrant, by 1913, Carl evolved into a hardened criminal. He had a significant physical stature with a muscular body and square shoulders. His dark hair and brooding look attracted many women, yet was never interested in anyone of the fairer sex. Carl really struggled with his sexuality, hence the sodomy. Yeah, that's another thing, isn't it? Who's Jeff, then? Who's <laughs> Jeff? Jeff Davis, one of the aliases. That's, that's, he was, yeah. that's him as a different person, but it's oh. one of his aliases, yeah. That's a real picture of him? Yeah. yeah. He's alright looking, I suppose, without the hair. That's what I was saying, though. He was a fine-looking chap, wasn't he? He, he? he had a lot going for him in lots of ways. Mm. But he was a mental case. <laughs> I could fix him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like Claire. <laughs> you're about a hundred years late for one. Look a bad boy. But you're the fairer sex. He oh, wouldn't right. have been interested. So he no. likes the bum love. Okay. He struggles with it. He won't admit it. I think we can, you can probably argue that because he's over his life, he committed over a thousand acts of sodomy. I think you can argue he's more into dudes but couldn't deal with it. Never raped a woman? No. No. Not that there we're aware go. of. There you go then. So. He may have had sex with women, in fact, he does have sex with. Oh, as well. We'll get to that. Okay. I can change him. Uh, <laughs> remember, he's only a violent criminal. <laughs> oh, wow, Mike. Wow. Oh, you mind, you live where you want to live. Uh, Carl eventually ended up in Chinook, Montana, where he was arrested under the name of Jefferson Davis for burglary and sentenced to one year at Deer Lodge, 30 miles north of Butte. 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 All right, Butte. <laughs> then he ran into his old mate, Jimmy Benson, and together they planned an escape, but he couldn't participate due to a last-minute transfer. On November 13th, 1913... Carl escaped Deer Lodge only to be caught approximately one week later on another burglary charge and was given another year and sent back to Deer Lodge. He was really, really shit. He was <laughs> relentless. Yeah. He was absolutely relentless. But he was, he was shit. Really. He never got away with it at all. He, every time he burgled somewhere, they arrested him. 
What, what the fuck was he doing leaving his name and address every time he went there? It's not like they had fucking CCTV, <laughs> DNA fucking... How the fuck was he getting caught all the time? Because he was rubbing a whole horse or something. And he'd be like, that's my horse. And he'd be like, nah, nah, it's not. Because these are all small towns, I guess. And whenever he's yeah. robbing, he's then trying to sell immediately to get money. So maybe he's caught that way. I don't know. You know what I mean, though? It does seem... I was like, he must have been thick as fuck as far as <laughs> being a thief goes. Yeah. It does tend to repeat itself <laughs> over and over again, yeah. Yep. Life in Deer Lodge was slow and monotonous as it was severely understaffed and mismanaged. And most days, inmates found little else to do except lay around their cells or wander the prison yard. But Carlfine found a way to occupy his, occupy his time. His sheer size and reputation allowed him to intimidate other inmates into submission and probably sodomy. I, I'm guessing that's what they were implying, mm. to be fair. Yeah. He did serve out his complete sentence there and left a free man on March 30th, 1915. So he was the daddy of the wing then, basically? Yeah. Oh, I'm the daddy of this fucking wing. Kind of scenario. You in myself. Where's seven. your tool? What tool? This fucking tool holds out his penis. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there was there was like no reform back then, was there? I mean, no. there's at least there's some now. I still think there should be a lot more. But in them days, he was just like lock him away and let him get on with it. Mm. Yep. You'd think that, but nope. And Carl was a veteran when it came to riding the rails, and wherever he went, he made his living from stealing. Anything and everything was fair game. Food, clothes, money, and especially firearms. And for several months in 1915, he traversed up and down the Columbia River in the Pacific Northwest. On June the 1st, 1915, he broke into a house in Astoria, Oregon, and stole less than $20 worth of property. He was then arrested for larceny in a dwelling after the local DA promised to go easy on him. He pled guilty, but was sentenced to seven years at Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem. Sentences now. Yeah, under the name Jefferson Baldwin, arriving there in June on June twenty fourth, nineteen fifteen. The guards obviously immediately identify his uncooperative attitude, and they were just as un- as unconcerned about it because it was notorious in the Pacific Northwest for punishing his prisoners with torture and abuse. This is where it gets interesting, actually, because Harry Minto, who's the first warden, keeps the inmates in line by using forceful techniques, whipping, hosing. That's when they put you against the door and you spray a fire hose at you. Freezing cold. Yeah. Yeah. It'll bruise you quite badly. Yeah, that, that. the pressure was yeah. fucking mad, isn't it? Beating, starving, isolation. They were shackled to walls and hung for rafters, hung from rafters for hours or even days on end. And to quote Carl, I swore I would never do that seven years, and I defied the warden and all his officers to make me. The warden swore I would do every damn day or he would kill me. Ooh. And he weirdly kind of... Ah, oh man, this is, he almost gets reformed. Mm. Because Minto's brother takes over, and they call him Spud Minto for the reason that the worst punishment you had was peeling spuds. Uh, and he really... <laughs> no, no, Mike. Funnily enough, it didn't go straight to sodomy with a potato. 
Just I don't where his mind always just, goes. Yeah, I was just running with the themes of <laughs> the show. There is a strong theme of sodomy, I'll give you that. But no, and he, like, he tries to get Carl to play on the prison baseball team, but he can't play the game, he's just not good at it. Mm. And then he gets him to try and play the drums in the prison marching band, and he's like shit at it. And he says, you know what, you can be the guy that carries the flag at the front. Mm. And that's what he did. And he was happy, and he was marching around, holding the flag. And... He got to the point where the warden said, look, you know, you came in here as one of the worst prisoners, but you're behaving, and if you continue to behave, I will let you out the prison on day release, or even early evening, as long as you're back by 10pm when we shut the gates, you can go out, do what you want, well, obviously within the realms of the law, mm. but you can drink, you can smoke, you can dance, you can do whatever, as long as you come back. And he does it for a bit. Mm. And then one day, he's drinking in a bar with some women, and he decides, you know what? Fuck it. <laughs> and he just jumps on a train and goes. And he said that was one of the few things he regretted was betraying Spud, Spud Minto's... Someone tried to show him yeah. compassion. And he almost responded. He, he did. I mean, he, he, you know, he's, he was quite well behaved mm. when he was doing the flag holding and... You know that? You know, he seemed to like it, but... Yeah. So did the system let him down? Maybe. Yeah, quite evidently, I'd say. Well, I'd say so, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but there wasn't, isn't much of a system. They just lock you and beat you. And rape you, yeah. Sodomise. Mm. That last paragraph. Is, yeah. Now, on September 18th, 1917, he escaped, and a few days later, a local officer recognised him from a wanted poster and attempted to apprehend him. Carl pulled over to gun and opened fire on the cop until he ran out of bullets, at which time he found himself in handcuffs once again. En route to the jail, he wrestled with the officer, resulting in Carl getting beaten until he was bloody and unconscious, and he would be taken back to Ohio State Penitentiary, where he ended up in solitary confinement because the warden who was trying to be nice got the sack. Oh. So they just went back to doing this. Oh, on May 12th, 1918, Carl managed to escape again, by soaring through the window blade, window bars with a hacksaw blade and jumping off the prison walls. Guy's an escape machine. <laughs> it's just a shame he's not very good at evading. Mm. He's great at escaping, no good at evading. Yeah. Guards immediately began firing upon him, but he managed to disappear into the woods, later hopping a freight train, heading east and leaving the Pacific Northwest forever. He changed his name to John O'Leary, Shaved his moustache and set out for the east coast. I've got to pee. Yeah. <laughs> so in the summer of 1920, Carl spent quite a bit of time in New Haven, Connecticut. He would go out at night, wooded up and down the streets for an easy mark, an unsuspecting drunk to rob, a young boy to sodomise, or a house to burglarise. I hate the word burglarise. Sounds really American. I guess it is. It's, we don't really use it that much. We say burglary, don't we? Yeah. The burgle, we say. Yeah, he robbed. robbed well, his yeah. Where else has been robbed? That's his yeah. three favourite things, though, isn't it? Drunk, getting drunk. No, robbing. Oh, robbing, sodomising, and burglarising. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that. Like would drinking. Be, and drinking. That technically would. To the, the drunk, it wouldn't be burglary, would it? It would be. He's mugging people. Mugging. That's mugging it. drunk yeah. people. He loves to mug drunk, drunk people, do things to young boys. And burglar houses. Yep. Bastard. 
Hey, you know what? These are just some of my favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> if you want my favorite things. Muggery buggery. <laughs> In the moonlight. <laughs> In August, found Carl. Carl found such a house. A three-story colonial he hoped belonged to an aristocrat. After breaking in and ransacking some rooms, he ended up in the den, where he found a substantial amount of jewellery, bonds, and a .45 automatic handgun. Yes. And when he saw the name on the bonds, he couldn't believe his luck. They belonged to none other than William H. Taft, the guy who'd locked him up in the army and was a former president. No way. So he gets his revenge. Mm. (laughs) Fancy him stumbling through that door, eh? I know. It's crazy, isn't it? So from there he made his way down to the Lower East Side of Manhattan where he pawned most of the jewellery and bonds, keeping some items, especially the handgun. And with his loot, Carl went out and bought a yacht named Akista, which he sailed up the East River through the Long Island Sound and onto the rocky coast of Connecticut, mooring at the New Haven Yacht Club where he settled for a short time, enjoying the weather, drinking Prohibition liquor and thinking of his next victims. This man's like a fanatical yacht owner. He owns several yachts in his life. In his short life. And when he visits Manhattan's Lower East Side, he noticed many sailors on shore leave looking for work on local boats. And as he traversed the streets of the East Village, he devised a plan of robbery and murder. For several weeks, he'd go down to the South Street neighbourhood and pick up one or two victims, telling them he needed deckhands on his yacht and he promised them anything to get them aboard. Once he convinced them to come with him, they would work for maybe a day, then he'd produce some alcohol, they'd get drunk and go to bed, and when they'd sleep, he'd take that 45 that he stole from former President Taft and blow their brains out. What? Imagine being the second person, because you were going to hear that fucking first boom, aren't you? Yep. He'd then tie a rock to the bodies, take them out to Execution Rock's lighthouse, and dump them a hundred jars, I'm sure. Yeah, that's just fucking. That's just killing for the sake yeah. of killing. He's a mask. He's a mass murderer. He's a serial killer. He's a spree killer. There's no coming back now for him, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> just now, just now, Mike. <laughs> no reforming this guy. Is that the line? Was it? Has it crossed the line? Yeah. And he repeated this for three weeks until locals grew suspicious. <laughs> like, <laughs> hey. Those guys went on that. Where's Jeff and Je- Where's Jeff and Dave? They were on that yacht last week. That Akista. The fuck are they? No one seen them. They can't. He, he took two other blokes. He, he took John and Jeff. There's other Jeff. Sounds called Jeff. <laughs> They're the only names you can think of. Jeff, Dave, and John. Yeah. <laughs> Barry. <laughs> Marvin. Marvin. Hank. Either way, they all went on that yacht. Terry. None of them have come back. Barry. I said Barry. Uh, but not, not in a Scouse accent. Oh. <laughs> so he repeated this for three weeks. That's So he was like, oh, fuck this, I'm going to get out of here. I'll, I'll take two more on. Go to Long Island Beach and I'll, I'll kill him and dump him in the sea there. But Mother Nature had other plans and a colossal gale hit the yacht and smashed it to pieces against the rocks. Now Carl managed to swim to shore barely escaping to make with his life. They also made it off. And Lucky just for them, did a runner, yeah. yeah. Fucking hell. 
1921, after getting into trouble in Bridgeport, Carl stowed away on a ship and ended up in Angola, which is a Portuguese colony on the west coast of Africa. And once there, he gets a job as a foreman on an oil rig with Sinclair Oil Company. He's gone fucking global now. He's on a world tour at this point. At this point, he decides he's going to try not being gay. He's he's conflicted here. So he, he... what makes it even worse, though, is he goes to a local family and says, I'll give you some money for a virgin. And they produce a nine-year-old. Oh. Who he then says, proceeds to go back to his hut with. And... Sodomizes pres- him, chance. Presumably has sex with an underage person. And then says, oh, I don't think she was a virgin. So he takes her back to the, the village. Want my money back? And says, oh, yeah, basically, I want my money back on a virgin. Fuck you. And they man. then produce her eight-year-old sister. Oh, my God. So we've got robbery, sodomy, assault, mugging. Now we're into paedophilia. He's a card, isn't he? That's <laughs> one way of putting it. Definitely a C with the four letters. It's not the four-letter word I'm thinking of that starts with a C. But... It, then Sorry. in the coastal town of Luanda, it was there that he raped and killed an 11-year-old oh, boy. Stay straight very long then, did he? No. He returned to Rubito Bay where he stayed for a bit in a fishing village. And although the locals suspected him of the murder, they could never prove he did it. He then went to a local bar where he hired six men to aid him in a crocodile hunt. This was the ruse he used to get them on a boat. But then he shot all six of them in the back. As they lay in their own blood... He reshot each one in the back of their head. It's cold, that is, isn't it? Fucking hell. After feeding his victims to the hungry crocs, he rowed back to Lobito Bay where he ducked the boat, but he realised he had to get away because dozens of people witnessed him hiring the six men he'd just killed. He's not very clever, is he? No, but I'd imagine that the police force in Angola at this point is either non-existent or terrible. It's a Portuguese colony, and it? it's, you know, I don't know. Either way, he's getting away with it. He proceeds north up river, eventually arriving at the Gold Coast, where he robs farmers in the local village, but to pay for his fare to the Canary Islands. And when he arrived there, he was broke and couldn't find anything of value to steal. So he stows away on board a ship, a ship bound for Lisbon in Portugal. And in Lisbon, he finds out the local government was on the lookout for him because of his African crimes. So he hides aboard another ship, Elysiaria, and this one takes him back to America. And in the summer of 1922, he's back in the USA. <laughs> back in the USA. And he returns to the United States and renews his captain's license and receives paperwork for his yacht, planning to steal a similar one and refit her under his old yacht's name. The thing about yachts, he began searching boatyards. Eventually, he ended up in Salem, where on July 18th, 1922, he came across a 12-year-old boy walking home alone. The boy was George Henry McMahon, who had spent most of that day at a neighbour's restaurant until the owner asked him to run an errand. Carl walked with the boy to the store, where he even dared to strike up a conversation with the store clerk. After leaving the store, he convinced young George to go for a trolley ride, where they ended up in a deserted part of town. Oh dear, I tell you this is going on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can, can't you? Once they're off the trolley, Carl grabbed the boy and took him to a secluded area, 
where he spent approximately three hours sodomizing him multiple times before hitting him over the head with a rock, killing him. He covered the boy's body with some branches and left. As he fled, two locals spotted the strange man, but they continued on their way. He actually does the same thing in Angola before he leaves. He grabs a local boy, takes him into the brush, sodomizes him, beats his skull in with a rock. Fucking relentless. And then just leaves him there for the, the wild animals to eat. I just have no words to say. Like, it's hard to even hear uh, it because so I've got kids of my own and it makes you think, fuck me. Uh, I oh, just couldn't imagine anything that happened to my children. It's just, just, just fucking. Yeah. It's a monster, eh? Yeah. Yeah. God, what yeah. would you do to him if you found him? Now, another year went by and Carl continued to roam around doing what violent criminals do. On August 9th, 1923, he was in New London searching for a mugging victim when he spotted a young boy begging for money. Carl pulled a knife on him, took him into some woods nearby and sodomised him. After spending a bit of time with his victim, he used the boy's own belt to strangle him before leaving him there to be ravaged by wild animals. Carl sodomised him yet again. Necrophilia now. Necrophilia onto the list. And then left the area and traversed up and down the eastern seaboard, constantly looking for opportunities to steal food and money and presumably sodomise. A couple of weeks later, on August 26th, 1923, Carl broke into the Larchmont train depot and was in the process of going through suitcases and stealing where he could find when an officer approached him. They grappled with each other and before Carl was dis- before Carl was disarmed and placed under arrest. He identified himself as John O'Leary and confessed to additional break-ins. In court the following day, he was charged with four counts of burglary. The judge set the bail at $5,000 and remanded him to the county jail pending any grand jury action. He was indicated a few weeks indicted. later, indicted, sorry, a few weeks later, with the large one burglary, and he cut a deal with the DA's office in exchange for a lighter sentence and a guilty plea. While he ended up his out the bar, end up his end, out, end of the bargain, the DA did not, requesting Carl serve the full five years. Who are you? At first, they sent him to the Sing Sing Correctional Facility, but as is often the case with uncontrollable prisoners like Carl, he didn't stay long, and he went to Clinton Correctional Facility, where hardened criminals were at the mercy of guards accustomed to hostile inmates, and it's the hellhole Danamora, the Alcatraz of its day, basically. Mm. Alcatraz means pelican. Does it? It does. <laughs> okay. Any reason? Pelicans on the island. Uh-huh. Pelican Island, Alcatraz. Mm. Alcatraz this... sounds a lot more scary, though, doesn't it? Dan- we're getting Danamora. To, we're getting sent to Pelican. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking Danamora sounds very Irish to me, and Irish names never sound scary. Like, oh, I'm off to Danamora. It's full kind of, of colourful painted houses, just like that Balamori. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, it's the hellhole. Sounds awful. Mm. The Clinton Correctional Facility was considered one of the most brutal facilities in the nation, and Carl found himself there in October 23, at which point the guards stripped him naked and confiscated all his possessions. And they had a uniquely violent culture, the guards. Many of the staff members were related due to several generations of prison employees and being raised and living in the area. And inbred was that. <laughs> Maybe. Thus, multiple generations passed down their methods and attitudes perpetuated by years of repression and abuse. 
and they viewed the prisoners in their charge as animals who deserved brutality. Many prisoners were psychologically broken and ended up across the courtyard at the state hospital for the criminally insane. The last stop before hell. Oh yeah. Metal! <laughs> He's gonna wanna get out of there then, isn't he? And he does have he gives it a really good go because he, he goes into the prison garden and he builds a ladder out of gardening equipment. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really fucking work because as he climbs up the wall, he falls, it breaks, he falls 30 feet onto the concrete below. Ah. And he breaks both of his legs and ankles and badly injures his spine. Now instead of getting him medical attention, the guards carried him to cell and basically just dropped him on the floor. To quote Carl Panzerum, I was dumped into a cell without any medical attention or surgical attention whatsoever. My broken bones were not set. My ankles and legs were not put into a cast. The doctor never came near me and no one else was allowed to do anything for me. At the end of 14 months of constant agony, I was taken to the hospital where I was operated on for my rupture and one of my testicles was cut off. (laughs) Where did the fucking rupture and what, what? I'm assuming to do with testicular rupture. Oof. Yeah. He continued. I suffered more agony. Always in pain. Crawling around like a snake with a broken back. Seething with hatred and a lust for revenge. Five years of this and of life. That last two years and four months confined in isolation. With nothing to do except brood. I hated everybody I saw. Fuck yeah. Thing is, right, you deserved it, you bastard. You deserve to be writhing around in pain after all those fucking poor children and fucking innocent people you murdered and, and bloody sodomised and whatever to. He deserved to be fucking writhing around in a, in, a, in a cell on his own for fucking years. Yeah. We're all kind of set here feeling sorry for the bastard. When you're reading that, you're almost feeling sorry for him. And then you remember, oh shit, no, he deserved that, the bastard. That's the least he deserved. He's, he is, as Mike said, he's a monster, isn't he? Yeah. That's what it boils down to. 100%. He is also a product of his upbringing, which is... That's the only bit that makes you slightly feel sorry for him. But that's only feeling sorry for him when he was... 12 and 13. Yeah, I'm not defending his actions at all. Just, you know, it's just like... He felt sorry for him as a kid, and then when he got molested by those four tramps, you felt sorry for him then. After, After that, that, though, that, he just becomes a rage machine. He's a rage fueled burglarising, sodomising... Everything. Nasty. Yeah. yeah. Necrophiliac. Paedophile. Racist. He hasn't done the animals yet, has he? Not that we're aware of. Now, shortly after his operation, a prison official witnessed Carl sodomising a fellow inmate. So he's had a ball off, he's been operated on, he's up on his own two feet. But I guess he's just trying out that ball, isn't he? Should have took his cock off as well, I think. I think they probably should have, you're right. The guards basically just threw him into solitary confinement and essentially ignored him for the remainder of his incarceration, which was two years and four months. Actually, you got to give him a little micro-nub to fucking pee out, haven't you? I guess it's a case of they go in, they change the bucket every morning, leave his breakfast, stand against the fucking wall, beat him a bit, take the bucket and thing out, replace them, lock the door again. 
the only interaction he's probably getting. Don't talk about micro knob, you've got to give him a micro <laughs> knob to piss out of. Oh, right. <laughs> what are you talking about? Just like, oh, my brother. I don't know, I lost it. I went, <laughs> and Mike, well, yeah, I guess. I think Claire lost it talking about a micro knob. Knobs in the brain, eh? If you chop it totally off, he's going to have to sit down for a woman, isn't he? Yeah, but they didn't, so it was irrelevant. Sorry. You're talking about something that makes all men feel really horrible inside. It actually, you, it makes, doesn't it? Make when you th- somebody I've talks got a funny about, feeling in my stomach. It really does. It's like uh, that's when you're talking about micro When you talk about people getting the nuts cut off, whatever penis removed, men tend to like curl over a little bit, and it's because it, they feel something weird. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Now, released from Clinton in July 1928, he was permanently crippled. Well, not permanently crippled, he was still walking around, but he wasn't the man he, the man he was. But he's still six feet tall, 200 pounds of pure muscle, with his chest and arms all tatted up, steely grey eyes, and a burning hatred from all humanity oozing from his pores. It's weird because he goes, like, mental... He, he, he starts planning all these elaborate schemes. He, he wants to start a war between Britain and America at one point. Because like, diplomatic tensions between Britain and America in 1928 were actually quite strained. And he plans to, like, put on, steal a US Navy sailor's outfit, row a boat up the side of a British warship filled with explosives, get the fuck out of there, leave it on a slow fuse, and blow up a British warship. Well. In American port, right. and he plans the same for an American port, an American ship, and a British port. He wants to start a world. He wants to start basically a world war. It's a shame the CIA went about this point. They would have signed him up. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, I hear you're into false flags, mate. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll overlook the sodomy, the paedophilia, the burglary, the murder, the necrophilia. Yeah. <laughs> Come work for us. <laughs> you'll fit right in. He would have done. <laughs> he's eventually arrested and sent to a Washington DC jail and when the fir- within the first few days he made several remarks to the guards about killing children and they made some inquiries and discovered he was telling the truth and was wanted in several jurisdictions that was the problem wasn't it they didn't know who, who they had yeah because he only gives his real name at this jail it's almost like he's had enough at this yeah. point he isn't the man he was but he's still massively strong and imposing because I mean He's had two broken legs and broken ankles and a and a damaged spine, but he's still overpower you. He'll still beat the shit out of you. Yeah, it was this time he met a 26-year-old rookie guard named Henry Lesser, disappointed in his family by going into this profession, but decided that people could be helped, and he actually gives Carl a dollar to buy some cigarettes. And Carl's like, that's the first nice thing anyone's ever done for me. Oh. Well, second, it was that warden, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it was like a genuine gift. Mm. This is a, it's the first genuine gift. You know, here's a dollar, buy some cigarettes. It's $1928. Tragic, innit? Yeah, $1928 was probably a bit of money. Yeah, it's it tragic that he's got to that point in his life when the first time someone's ever done anything for him. Mm. Yeah. And Halesa basically asked Carl to sort of write his life down he get talking he's telling stuff he's like write it down Henry felt the urge to ask Carl how he 
reformed people. Car reforms people by killing them. Mm. Yeah. Over the next several weeks... He's not re- sorry, he's not reforming people. He's picking people just at random. You know, it's not... He wants to kill everybody at this point. He's not reforming. He's not helping. He's not <laughs> no, he's, he's no, he's just killing people. That's how he reforms people, by killing them. That's sick his mind is at this yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah, they, 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 they develop a bit of a friendship to the point where actually Lesser turns his back on Carl in the cell and Carl's like, why are you doing that? Why have you turned your back? And he's like, oh, we're friends, are we? He's like, you've no idea what kind of man I am. Kind of shit going on. It's like, you turned your back on me. You don't ever turn your back on me. We might be friends, but... I'll sodomise you instant. I'll sodomise you instant. <laughs> You're a guard. You're still a guard. Yeah. He actually write, he gets Carl to write down his life story and this is where we get all the details from and Carl's got a pretty good memory. A lot of these crimes can be verified. It was a 20,000 word confession. Yeah, a lot of crimes to confess. Ooh. Fuck me. He supplies dates, times and locations as well as his extensive arrest history. Now during the years 1900 to 1930 while Carl was in the throes of his criminal career, communication among law enforcement agencies was primitive at best. All criminals had to do was change their names and keep their mouths shut if they wanted to avoid warrants. And he learned this rule early in his career as he used several aliases. Jefferson yeah. Baldwin, Jeffrey Rhodes, John King, John O'Leary. So he kept avoiding longer sentences. Or worse. Yeah. Well, yeah. He would have been put to death, wouldn't he, in yeah. some states. To quote Carl, all of my associates, all of my surroundings, the atmosphere of deceit, treachery, brutality, degeneracy and hypocrisy, and everything that is bad and another thing that is good. Why am I what I am? I'll tell you why. I did not make myself what I am. Others had the making of me. Yep. I'm we- Batman. <laughs> We've got to take responsibilities, well not us obviously, personally, but as a society, society made him, didn't it? It did, but I also feel he's using it, he had chances to turn his life he around. He didn't have many, did he? He had at least two. We'll count the army as something he could have done, and we'll count the prison where he could have got reformed and chose to leave. He yeah. had chances, he always made the wrong mm. decision. Yeah, there's that, that you have to take that into account as well. But, but what chance did he have at such an early age? No, and, and then you got your brain injury as well. Let's face it. It's the thing, every killer, spree killer, mass killer, serial killer has in common. that brain injury. But then society punishes him for not conforming. Now, page after page, Carl detailed his pilgrimage of murder and rape spanning numerous continents. He expressed little guilt or remorse, seemingly viewing his actions as a justified form of revenge against a world that had tortured him. He appeared oblivious to the fact that his victims were not the ones that caused his suffering. All that mattered to Carl was that someone had to pay, and anyone would suffice. I'd argue he's more cold-blooded than many 20th yeah. century serial killers. I can't believe I'd never heard of him. And yeah. 
far as I haven't made a Netflix documentary <laughs> or a film about him, but, it, you know. Yeah, it's too much sodomy, isn't that, it? Yeah, exactly. Netflix loves sodomy! <laughs> In a consensual way. Yeah, this isn't... No. Forced sodomy. Yeah. And <laughs> despite, <laughs> despite his many years in institutions around the nation... Carl could never acclimate acclimate to the environment. He couldn't allow himself to conform to the rules or commands. Even knowing the consequences would be more physical torture of the worst kind, Carl consistently remained violent and uncooperative. He's likely to have ADHD or... Don't start labelling him. Shut it. ADHD has only been out for about 10 years anyway, so... It's not a song, mate. I can be treated like one. Everyone's got ADHD. I have. I can diagnose myself with that quite happily, yeah. Every day of the week. Especially in later life. Never as a, a youngster, but in later life, definitely. This is what I mean. Everyone's got ADHD in their own way. Because there is no fucking normal... Everybody is different. Everybody yeah, everyone's different on the spectrum. To, that's what I mean. Everyone is up there and everyone's different. Anyway, he's just a mental case nutter. In another life, he'd have been a war hero. He's a sociopath, isn't he? Yep. If you could have born, diverted his talents... Or if he was born into a wealthy family, he'd be a banker or a hedge fund manager. Or president. Or president. <laughs> yeah, politician. You know. You're born rich and you're a psychopath. You flourish in society. If you're poor and you're a psychopath, you know, may end up in prison or dead. Yeah, pretty much. Or joining the army. See, if he just put his talents to use and hung around in the army for a bit longer, imagine him rocking up on the Western Front, 1917. Carl Panzerum. Oh, he'd have been the one coming back with scalps and anuses around his neck. <laughs> After an early escape attempt and punishment, he assaulted three guards when they removed him from his cell. So more consequences followed, and all the time, the slow wheels of justice are turning. On October 29th, an arrest warrant arrived for him on a murder indictment in Philadelphia for the homicide of Alexander Zaki on July 26, 1928. In Massachusetts, the Salem Police Department brought the two witnesses who had seen the strange man, the Knight McMahon, George McMahon, the young 12-year-old kid, was murdered and both were able to positively identify him. Oregon State Police requested that Carl be detained as an escapee with 14 years left to serve. Now, early in 1929, he realised he'd be in jail for the rest of his life and everything was catching up to him. However, upon this arrest, he'd given up. Carl was tired of running, evidence of the fact he broke two of his first career criminal rules, giving his real name and telling them everything. At the time, he wrote a letter to the DA clerk in Salem in which he shockingly repeated his confession to the McMahon murder. And to quote him, I made a series, I made a full confession of this murder of McMahon. You sent a number of witnesses from Salem to identify me, which they done. I do not change my former confession in any way. I committed that murder. I alone am guilty. I not only committed that murder, but 21 besides, and I assure you here and now, if I ever get free and have the opportunity, I shall sure knock off another 20 
too. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> Cole Panzer's trial for the burglary charges began on November. The burglary. 12th. Yeah, he's got to do that first. <laughs> in 19, on November twelfth, nineteen twenty-eight, and he acted as an attorney, taking opportunities to frighten the nine male and three female jury. With a jury with his unpredictable behaviour. Imagine him. I mean, all right. Acting as your own defence is never a good idea. But when you're six foot tall and 200 pounds of pure solid muscle and you're acting as your own attorney, you can intimidate a fucking jury. Yeah, but it's probably not the route you want to go down, is it? You want to. You want them on your side. You You do, but he's just like. He doesn't know how to charm people. Well, clearly not. He's just like. I'll kill you all and rape your corpses. <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. You know, at the end of the proceedings, he took the stand where Carl not only confessed the burglary, but admitted to staying in the house for several hours, hoping the owners would return because he had every intention to murder them. <laughs> yeah, he, don't go saying that. That's a good thing defensive. It's like, oh, by the way, I, I only robbed the place. <laughs> Uh, I also stayed down and probably murdered and sodomised them. <laughs> um, sodomised and murdered them. <gasps> I can see the judge's faces now. Yeah. The judge sentenced him 25 years at none other than the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas, where he originally started out as a military prisoner. Mm. Upon hearing the sentence, all Carl could do was give a broad, evil grin as he told the judge to visit him. Huh. Come visit me, judge. We'll have a fun time. <laughs> Carl arrived back in Leavenworth on February the 1st, 1929 and was directly taken to Warden White's office. Still an impressively sized man with bulging muscles obvious under his shirt and an evil aura that gave off a warning of its own. He stood quiet and indifferent in front of the desk as he read the institution's rules and as soon as the warden finished talking, Carl looked him dead in the eye and gave him his only warning. I'll kill the first man that bothers me. Wow. Hmm. Considered too psychotic and unpredictable to be housed with a general population, Carl was assigned work detail in the laundry room where he could work alone all day. His supervisor was a civilian employee by the name of Robert Warnke. He was a small boarding man, well known for rising up inmates for even the most minor infractions. You can see how this is going to go. <laughs> He used his position as a supervisor to wield his power and wrote Carl up on several occasions, which cost him some time in solitary. When he got out of the solitary, he told other inmates to stay clear of Wonky because he'd be dying soon. He then told, he wrote his friend Henry Lesser, telling him that a new job was in the works. <laughs> on June 20th, 1929, while working his usual detail in the laundry, Carl wordlessly picked up a four-foot-long iron bar and approached Wonky, who was busy with paperwork. Raising the bar high over his head, Carl brought it down with a powerful force, crushing Wonky's skull instantly. As he fell to the ground, Carl continued to beat him in the head relentlessly. Is that you, little Pete? (laughs) Your metal bar? No. (laughs) I only use it to stop big animals biting me, and it's only eight inches. It was four the other week. No. I'm sure it wasn't eight. It's never been four. <laughs> six to eight. Six to eight inches. The, the, the average. The iron bar now we're talking about. <laughs> <one>. <laughs> 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 
The other inmates present kind of just stood back and watched in horror. They tried to escape, but the doors to the room were all locked, so all they could do was scream as Carl chased her in the room, shouting, cursing, and swinging the iron bar around. When armed guards arrived, <laughs> Carl told them he killed Wonky and he dropped the heavy iron bar to the ground. No, no read that bit. The terrified rep- prisoners reportedly crawled up the walls to mm. get away from the raged madman. <laughs> Fucking hell. That's what I was laughing at. You can see it, can't you? Fucking hell, he's a fucking mentalist. I think you're trying to say he wasn't a mentalist. He's a mentalist. Darren Brown's not chasing you out of the room with an iron bar, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) He keeps doing mind tricks on me. This is six foot tall, 200 pounds of pure cut muscle. He's got a bit of brain on the end of the bar. Yes. Uh, oh, you know there's brain that's good on the end of the iron bar. <laughs> Crazy hook in his eye. I can yeah. see it now. Yeah. Yeah. The guards carefully opened the door and Carl just padded to his cell, not saying a word and sat in his bunk. Carl's murder for Wonky's death began... Sorry, Carl's murder trial... For Wonky's death began on April 14th, 1930. He limped into the courtroom defiantly and refused counsel. And when the judge asked for his plea, he stood and sneered. He said, not guilty. <laughs> the prosecutor called a multitude of witnesses. The warden, who brought the murderer into the court, and who also Carl had tried to go and kill, but wasn't in his office at the time. Well, he stormed the warden's office. You know... Got some brass neck. Yeah. He, he should be in like proper chains, like round the ankles at all points. I think. <laughs> Five guards and ten fellow prisoners also testified. Yeah, he should be locked up. He should be in chains. He should be bronzed. Yeah. During the witness testimonies, Carl just sat in his chair and smiled at them. The jury deliberated for a mere forty-five minutes. Forty-five be- minutes. Yeah. Before delivering a guilty verdict. The judge remanded the convicted murderer back to Leavenworth until September 5th, 1930, when between 6 or 9am, it's flexible, we'll see what time breakfast is, he will be taken to the gallows and hanged by the neck until dead. Upon hearing his sentence, Carl seemed relieved, almost happy, a genuine grin spread across his face as he stood from his chair. The US Marshal surrounded him as he cursed the jury and dragged him out of the courtroom. The last thing jurors heard from Carl Pansrum was his demonic laughter, which echoed oh. off the sterile walls of the quarters. <laughs> I think a bit more manic. <laughs> Carl considered his death sentence a relief of sorts and actively resisted any attempts at a stay. During that time, several organisations objected to the death penalty on moral and ethical grounds. One such group, the Society of the Abolishment of Capital Punishment, went so far as to petition the Governor's Office for a pardon or commutation of the sentence. The help they wanted to provide did nothing but enrage Carl, and he lashed out at them. (laughs) No, he's in jail. He's just writing them a letter. The fact that you are so anti-death penalty and you're like, fucking hell, someone's bleeding for this. This is not the fucking hill to die on, is it? You know what I mean? (laughs) You're okay killing Carl Panzer. Is what you're saying? 
This is not... All I'm saying is this is not the one to fucking use an example of not to have a death penalty. Either. Yeah, no. <laughs> We'd like to hear what he wrote to them. Yeah. Scroll down, please, mate. Can we do it in a normal voice just so we can understand it? You can understand my Batman voice. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I can, but I hope the other viewers can. Listeners. That's the important That's what thing. I meant. The only thanks you and your kind will ever get from me for your efforts on my behalf is that I wish you all had one neck and that I had my hands on it. <laughs> I have no desire whatever to reform myself. My only desire is to reform people who try to reform me. And I believe that the only way to reform people is to kill them. Whoa. See what I mean? Not the sort of... <laughs> not the one you want to be using as an example. No. No, if you're an anti-death penalty person, <laughs> you're not trying to get Carl Panzer freed, are you? You're making an exception for yeah, Carl, aren't you? Yeah. I think you are, aren't you? Don't, no, no, don't kill anyone, but you can him. Because yeah. he's, he's just wrong. <laughs> Friday, September 5th, 1930, was a cold and dusty morning. Always is, isn't it? Yeah. Correction officers took Carl from his cell at 5.55am. Oh, he still tastes a toothpaste and escorted him to the gallows. The only witnesses to Carl's execution were a few newspaper journalists and about a dozen corrections officers. Rebellious always, Carl cursed his mother for bringing him into the world. Oh, Jesus. Escorted by two US Marshals, he climbed the 13 steps to the platform. As the Marshals attempted to place the black hood over his head, he spat in the executioner's face and said his famous last words. Hurry up, you huge bastard. I could kill ten men while you're fooling around. <laughs> and he probably could. With the hood secure, the marshal stepped back, and at precisely 6.03am, the trapdoor sprung open and Carl dropped the five and a half feet down. His large body jerked a couple of times, then swung from side to side in a sudden silence. Dr Justin K. Fuller pronounced him dead at 6.18am. The fuck? They sat there watching him swing for 15 minutes? You can swing, you can be alive for quite a while, and if the hood's on, then then I'm going to see that he's still gasping. Oh, God. After his body was removed from the gallows, the prison hospital performed the standard autopsy. Since nobody claimed, came to claim the body, Carl Panzer was carted to the prison cemetery in a wheelbarrow. Who's going to come and claim that shit? He's well, he's got family. six siblings. It's uh, <laughs> my family. I want to know. No, thank you. He was laid to rest in a solitary plot. The only identification is a stone with the number 31614. Should we go make a headstone and put it there? I feel bad for him. As if. Do you know the number is the amount of people he's sodomised? <laughs> Dang. He claims over a thousand males he's been he's sodomised. Thirty one thousand six hundred and fourteenth, my bet. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me. So how many people did he kill? Twenty one he, he confessed to, so they reckon it was more. Twenty two, they reckon it was more. Because I I'd heard like hundred plus. It could be. It could well be. He confessed to the twenty one the twenty two. But yeah, it, it could well have been 100, 100 plus, yeah. Well, if he was taking two sailors out every fucking day for three weeks or every other day, even even three or four times, even three or four times, that's like eight, 
ten plus the six that you took out and shot more. So that's fucking a, a dozen or more instantly, mm. just them. So I'm pretty sure there was a lot more than that. Don't forget the Angola years. Mm. Mm. Things aren't quite as the, the, the infrastructure isn't quite there. That America has as basic as that was. Mm. Yeah, either way, he's a fucked up puppy, man. Claire just looks horrified. He's a wrong one, isn't he? Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he is. Happy Christmas. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We should have watched Zulu. Oh, it can continue. It carries on the pro tradition of dark Christmas. It certainly does. The problem is, you always have to top it. I never thought we were going to top Unit 731. <laughs> we did with did. this. Yeah. We might have done. We might have done. It's pretty dark. But I wish it could be Christmas every day. On that bombshell. On that bombshell, I've been Ben. If you're still listening, thank you very much. Don't drink the favourite. Don't drink the cult. Don't be Carl Panzerum. I've been Mike, thanks for listening. Peace out, may the force be with you. And I've been Claire, keep making mine, but not going to do it. Still going to do it, guys. And I've been Pete, everyone have a nice Christmas and a merry new year. I might add, don't be Carl Panzer to my sign off. <laughs> I think he's, you know, in this day and age, I think he's worth, he's repeating, doesn't it? <laughs>